Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tetz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tetz. Thank you very much for joining us again. My pleasure. This is episode three in marriage. The previous two were talking about finding a suitable marriage partner. There might be an episode four, depending on how much we cover today. But we did leave off with the second non-negotiable in finding a marriage partner, which you said was character, quite cryptic. Robert Tetz, please explain what you meant. Yes. So let's summarize in a few seconds. We said that in choosing a marriage partner, there's some absolute requirements. We discussed those. We also said there are two what I would call non-negotiables, the two things to put first. We discussed the first one, which is attraction, chemistry, physical attraction, emotional chemistry. That is the second. And third, we began to talk about, namely, character. This is by far the most important issue when you're choosing a marriage partner. We're talking about raw personality, not the peripheral issues, not details of character, the raw core of what a person is. You know, many young people say, Rabbi, I need to marry somebody with a good sense of humor. Well, okay, you know, that, that does say something about you, but it doesn't sum up your character completely. Some people say, I have to marry somebody super intelligent, you know, very, very intelligent. That is not correct. Not correct. I will show you people with two academic degrees whose personal lives are a shambles. And I'll show you people with no academic ability who've got wisdom in their hands. They know how to handle relationships. When I say to the young people, the young ladies, why does he have to be super intelligent? They tell me because I want to have a lot of DNMs. DNMs. You know what DNMs are? Deep and meaningfuls. I want to sit up all night with him having deep and... Believe me, Rabbi Mena, that from the moment you get married, you will never have another deep and meaningful discussion with your husband. <laughs> Who's got time? You know, who has got time? While you're dating, of course, you sit and have long DNMs. And by the way, even if you had time, what are you going to have a DNM with your wife about? She knows what you think already about the Southeast Asian political situation and nuclear disarmament. So therefore, I would say that, of course, if it's an individual need that you respect somebody who's very intelligent, that could be valid, indeed. But it doesn't sum up a person's character and academic intelligence is far from the most important aspect in having a good relationship. And therefore, I would say, primarily what you're looking for is somebody who is above all else giving, kind, loving, normal, happy, coping, what the psychologists call well-adjusted, Basically, a normal South African. Uh, you know, <laughs> that is what I would say you should choose. But we're talking here about a well-balanced, loving, kind, happy, coping person. If you choose somebody who is twisted, psychopathic, hung up, and bitter, you know, you're in trouble. Unless, of course, you are psychopathic, twisted, and bitter. There's a wonderful story about a sadist and a masochist who got married. Right? Sadist and a masochist who got married. Wonderful partnership, right? As soon as the door closed, they were alone together. The masochist said to the sadist, hurt me. And the sadist said, no. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that, of course, would be the perfect marriage. Now, of course, when we talk about a well-adjusted and wonderful person, obviously people have their own issues and baggage. It's very common today for people to have baggage. I wonder if you realize how many young people today are on antidepressants and anxiety medication. But important point is 
what the person's baggage, let's call it, is, is it compatible with yours? In other words, yes, they may have a psychological issue, they may be dealing with stuff, but you can't fail to look at their personality. That's an aspect of their personality. I'm not nixing people who have psychological issues. But nevertheless, the most important thing to consider is the basic personality. Two balanced, loving, kind, self-confident people with self-esteem in a relationship will be, will be wonderful. If you ask to single out the single most important characteristic, I would say giving. Above all else, a giver. Two people trying to give happiness to each other, recipe for bliss. Notice that this means, and here we can talk about not just selection criteria, but criteria for making a good marriage as well. We are not talking about a partnership. It's a very big misconception that marriage needs to be a partnership. Because a partnership always means I feel I'm doing my part of the partnership and why isn't she doing hers? I think there's a Midrashic statement that says there's a chair in heaven called the chair of the happy partner and it's always empty. Because partners feel, you know, I've got my responsibility, she's got hers. We train Jewish husbands not to think about marriage as a partnership. Because if you think it's a partnership, you'll walk in hungry and frustrated and expect her to have done her end. No, it's not a partnership. It's about your giving to the other. Of course, if you try to marry somebody who's concerned about giving to you, that will work very well. And we can talk a bit later about some of the principles involved in making a good marriage work. But let's focus for a moment on the qualities of character. So we're talking about somebody who is a good, kind person, above all else, kind and giving. Now the question is, how do you know they are? People date, you know, they present their best face, and it's almost impossible to get to know the real person inside in the tension and the, even shall I say, the romance and the nerves of just getting to know somebody initially. So the solution to this is twofold. How do you know what the genuine character is of the person you're considering marrying? The first thing is a little bit of history. What's their history? Do they have long loving friendships, deep loyalties, a course in life that speaks well of their character, and, or do they have a fractured, difficult you know, background? That's very important. And here we come to another important issue, which is family backgrounds. We are all parts of our families. We are all products of our families and our cultures. I'll say that again. We are all products of our families and our cultures, even if we've rebelled. And therefore, it's very important to take that into account. Now, we don't condemn people because of their family background, but it's very important. I think we should begin by saying this. It's well registered in psychological, psychiatric, sociological research. People tend to repeat the patterns of their parents. Abused children tend to end up as damaged or abusing parents. This is very well known. And if you look in the psychiatry literature, you'll find that deep problems that occurred between the ages of, uh, under the age 15, more or less, this is what the research shows, scar the character more deeply. When a youngster is over 15, 16, 17, and some major trauma happens like death of a parent or divorce, it can be deeply scarring, but it usually doesn't affect the core. Once they have a solid sense of identity and self-confidence, but a girl is three or four or five years old, a child is three or four or five and their father dies, a little girl like that may never trust men again or trust God again. can be very, very difficult. Let me hasten to add that people who've been through trauma when they were young, there are many exceptions. Many people come out paradoxically strengthened by the trauma. I would pick out one particular case, and that is people who are raised in a non-religious environment and are the victims of broken families where they've gone through tremendously angry and frustrating and traumatic backgrounds, and then they become religious. And I've seen this time and again. What happens is they start as people with a lot of frustration and anger directed against parents, and then they become religious and their attitude changes from one of criticism and frustration to one of pity. 
If only my parents had more Jewish values. If they'd only be instructed in the orthodox principles of loving marriage, they never would have got into that. And then the next step is these young people model themselves on an ideal religious marriage that they look up to and reconstruct their whole vision of themselves and their marriage can be very, very successful. But I would say that a consideration of the background is important when you're assessing who the person is. It may redound to their credit when you see they've been through certain traumas and come out strengthened. I've seen young people who've lost parents and gone through major trauma and risen to the occasion by taking responsibility for their siblings and come out mature beyond their years. But it's important. So number one, I would say, is investigation of the history and the background. Number two, Rabbi Mena, enough time. Enough time. You know, if you're from a secular background and need to gain confidence in your understanding of the relationship and you've met three times or four times over two weeks and then pressurized into to get married, recipe for trouble. Now, how much is enough time? How much is enough time? Rabbi Gottlieb says he tells the boys in Yeshiva eight months. He said no one ever listens, so he says four months. I doubt any listen, anyone listens to that either, but what he's trying to give them is a guideline. Do not rush. Don't rush. You know, the first flush of a relationship is not necessarily authentic. You need to let it settle down till you get comfortable with the person. I would like to add a rule of thumb. I will tell you exactly how long you need. And here's my rule. Until you know that another date will bring in no information or change your attitude. In other words, this couple's been dating for three weeks or three months, whatever it is. And you've gotten to know the person so well that you know their attitudes to everything in the world. You know their goals and aspirations. You know that getting to know them, meeting them one more time, is not going to change your vision of who they are. You know, Rabbi Mazen, if I would say to you, what would your father say if he was involved in a certain scenario? You tell me. You know the man. You know how to respond. When you know somebody, a girl, or a girl knows a young man, to the extent that they, they've seen each other in different circumstances, they've seen each other where they're not feeling well, they've seen each other under pressure, they've discussed you know, common goals, you can't afford to marry a girl and then discover that, you know, you want 25 children and she wants to be sterilized. You know, no, <laughs> no, you need to have a common goals. And un- I have a friend, by the way, married a young lady in California. And after she was married, she told him she'd been sterilized. Can you imagine the conscience of a doctor doing that? As it happens, the marriage broke down very, very soon. Be that as it may. So we're talking about a deep feeling. Now, of course, it's never fully accurate. And of course, after marriage, the relationship dynamic changes completely. Highly recommend a good book here that's called The River, the Kettle, and the Bird by Rabbi Feldman. It's a wonderful book about how the marital dynamic changes right after marriage. Different psychological headspace, different mindset. Very important to be prepared for that. Nevertheless, once you get to know someone well enough that you know how they respond when they're not feeling well and when they're under pressure and enough time has gone by for that, then it is a time to get engaged or split because you're only making the pain worse by delaying it. But before that is premature. So if you're introverted, that could just take longer. That's a good point. Indeed, yes, it could. It could could take more time to bring out the depth of an introvert. But I have some advice for that. And that is explore different circumstances. Here's a young lady. She wants to get to know the young man. First of all, invite him home. Very important. Go and see the home. If you walk into the home and there's soft music playing and the parents are still married after many years, that's very good. But if there's blood on the walls, you know, and human bones... (laughs) piled in the corner that does not bode well but then when the young man comes to visit you know get your little sister to spill some soup in his lap get the dog to bite him unexpected you know to put him through a little uh, little little tension and pressure you know and uh, i I hope our listeners don't take me seriously on that but (laughs) once you've seen each other in different circumstances and seen how the person responds to you know to pressure i mean my my daughter who's married now to a young man in south africa that from the first date he lost the keys to the car it was a borrowed car a sports car that he'd borrowed from his friend. They were on the beach in Cape Town and he lost the keys, you know. So that was very interesting for her to see. How did he cope 
with the, the embarrassment and the tension and the trauma of you know having lost the keys to the the car. So that was a, a traumatic incident, but I think it gave each of them a lot of insight into how they would relate to each other. So although nothing you could see on dates really prepares you for life's traumas and life stresses. That's true, but I would say that despite that, if you've dated enough and feel comfortable with each other and gotten beyond the first sort of artificial hesitancy about disclosing and talking about things openly, that's very important in our day and age. Now again, as I said in a previous talk, if you come from a cultural background where there's such a commonality of purpose and goal and background and so few previous you know, intergender relationships that uh, you may not need that. But if you come from a secular background with many previous relationships, not only that, you know, previous relationships also capture a part of one's heart. Here's this young Balchuva, you know, he may have had one particularly meaningful relationship in the past, or she may have. And the first person you give yourself to fully always captures a part of you and their comparisons and memories. These are all issues that need to be need to be dealt with. And therefore, you need to get to that stage of feeling comfortable with the person without pressure. Of course, you shouldn't drag your feet either. It's just unfair and, and wrong. But one needs to get to the point of being able to discuss things openly. One of the things that needs to be discussed openly, of course, is particular issues, medical problems, psychological problems. At what point does one disclose that is a discussion we should have at some some point in time. But until that's been done, you know, it's probably premature. I think the question to ask oneself is, have we reached a point in this relationship where if I propose or he proposes to me and I say, yes, I know I'm doing it in a way that I'll wake up tomorrow morning fully committed. Of course, there'll always be fluttering of, you know, nerves in the, you know, butterflies in the, and of course, one of the reasons we have a mitzvah of rejoicing with the bride and groom is to help them get over those nerves because it's natural. But it's very important for a young person to discern and distinguish between how much of my attention here is simply the nerves of facing a marriage and how much is my realistic doubts and lack of knowledge about the person. Those two need to be distinguished very carefully. Wow. How does this all lead? I mean, we've spoken a lot about finding the marriage partner. How would you say this leads to an amazing, loving, healthy marriage? Well, I think there are a lot of ways to approach that, but let me approach it on two levels. First of all, the principle, and then some practicalities. The principle is, as Rav Dessler so classically puts it, to be a giver and not a taker. This is a much broader question. Rabbi Dessler, one of the famous teachers in this area, he says people are either givers or takers. The divine position is to be a giver. God is a giver, not a taker. We have a beautiful expression of that. The one who loves gifts is not alive. One who hates gifts is alive. If you want gifts, take, 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 give me. A selfish individual, I have a very deep problem in marriage. But if you're a giver, first of all, that's a divine position. And if you're a giver, that means a lover, a giver. And two givers are giving to each other the recipe for success. This is so important to state in a secular society where the mode is taking. Let me explain what I mean. We live in democratic societies. These societies are built on the notion of rights. The Bill of Rights, the Constitution, my rights, this is what society owes me. Rights are parallel to taking, I'm afraid to say. Obligations are parallel to giving. You know what's fascinating? In all Western democracies, the Constitution of these democracies is all phrased in terms of rights. Right to free speech and right to free assembly. Entitlements. In the Jewish agenda, the Jewish constitution called the Torah, rights are never mentioned ever, only obligations. The Torah never mentions a right to free speech, to your possessions, to your property. The Torah only mentions an obligation, not to steal, to give him the right to speak freely. Now, it's important to know that every right has a corresponding obligation. My right to my property is your obligation not to steal. My right to a living wage 
is your obligation as employer to pay a living wage. So they're both true, but which end do you focus on? If you focus on your, on your rights, you're a taker. If you focus on your obligations, you're a giver. And a society in which everyone focuses on their rights is a society built on civil war. Right, Rabbi Wasserman used to put it like this, one of my great teachers. Take the most extreme example. The Torah allows you to own a slave. However, however, you need to treat the slave like a brother. Now, how does it work? Here's a person who owns a slave. If he says to the slave, you ought to be working like a slave, and the slave says to him, you should be treating me like a brother, you have war. But if the slave works like a slave and the master treats him like a brother, you have love. When the workers fight for their rights, what do the employers do? The workers form a union so they can fight for their rights. Then the employers, they make a national association of employers and you have civil war. So they're both true, of course, but which do you focus on? In marriage, you have your rights, no question. But if you focus on your rights, you'll have civil war. You focus on your obligations. How can I make her happy? And of course, the woman is thinking about how she can make me happy. You have a recipe for idyllic bliss. And therefore, I would say, in answer to your question, the most important mode in marriage is how to be a giver. If you walk into the house not thinking, has she done her job because I've done mine, but how can I make her happy? You will find that reflection, I would even put it quite cynically, if you really want to be happy yourself, your best recipe is making the other one happy. Of course, that's not the right reason, but it's good enough to start with. If you want a happy marriage, the best you can do is make sure your partner's happy. If you're married to a normal person, you know that is guaranteed to evoke the corresponding behavior. And finally, practicalities. There are some very practical rules that need to be maintained. Some very simple. Never go to bed at night with tension between you. If there's a fight, you never go to bed with a silent, not speaking stuff. Absolute other question. Sit there with matchsticks in your eyes until you can find it in your heart to say a chilly good night, at least. You know, that's a very important rule. Otherwise, it drags on day after day of silence and, you know, bitterness. There are very important rules in marriage. Jewish husbands need to know that you have certain obligations. Of course, we talk about the women as well. But we teach Jewish husbands in their preparation for marriage that you have to live from now on with the total constant awareness that the most important thing in your life is your wife. You know, in, in Judaism, we have a process called Shana Rishona. Shana Rishona means your obligations of the first year of marriage, based on biblical precedent, where a Jewish man's obligation is to spend one year doing nothing other than proving to his wife that nothing means anything in the world besides her. You may never be where she doesn't know. You may never come late without calling ahead. You can never leave her side without her permission for a year. And most of our modern rabbis tell us it now takes us 10 years to get that right. Which means that men need to know that not only do they need to put their wives first, they need to show and demonstrate that the wife comes first. Here's a man sitting at an important business meeting. Millions of pounds about to change hands, or dollars as the case may be, and suddenly she's on the line. What's the normal husband's response? I'll call you back. No. The right Jewish response is, gentlemen, you can all wait, it's my wife. And you need to say it loud so she hears. If you're coming late to a business meeting, you call ahead. Ten minutes, you call ahead. If you're going to be ten minutes late to a meeting with your wife, you call ahead as well. She deserves more respect than any business relationship. There's no question. Let me tell you something even more radical. Do you know that in Jewish marriage, you may not ask your spouse to do you a favor unless you know they're considered a privilege? Darling, you know, could you drop my shoes off at the shoemaker? No, she's not your servant. Absolutely not. Unless you're confident that she considers it an act of love. You know, imagine the Prime Minister comes to, to visit you and he walks into your house with the entourage and the TV cameras and so forth and so on. After the official visit, as he leaves, you say, Mr. Prime Minister, I know you're going past the dry cleaner. Could you just drop off my seat? <laughs> no. Well, she's more important than he is. And therefore, no. 
Husband and wife should treat each other like king and queen. Absolutely. And by the way, the children need to see that too. If you treat your husband like a king, he treats you like a queen, you have a fantastic relationship. And therefore, this is so important. The psychological basis on which a Jewish man needs to spend a year proving his wife's centrality in his life is because men tend to take their relationships for granted. We have a deep insight based on deep Kabbalistic sources and other. A woman never takes her marriage relationship for granted. She's always aware of it. By the way, this is why when a couple fight and argue, the man thinks it's terrible and he walks out, it'll be okay tomorrow. She thinks the world has ended. Why? Not because she's feeble-minded, because she's totally bonded into and invested in the relationship. It is her. As we said before, a woman has a much deeper sense, a much deeper maturity in understanding the totality of a relationship. And therefore, a Jewish man, although he may love his wife, and you walk up to him on the street and ask him if he loves her, absolutely, yes, and he'll buy flowers, but he wasn't thinking about it just then. He was thinking about his next billion dollars or whatever. And therefore, a Jewish man needs the training of a year to prove explicitly, train himself and prove to his wife that she's the most important thing. And therefore, in answer to your question, if two married people are concentrating consciously on giving to each other selflessly, their prime goal has to be the other one's happiness and welfare. There's no greater recipe for happiness in marriage and no greater recipe for your own personal happiness. And of course, that happiness should be fed back into the thrill of the relationship. But these are some initial thoughts about the rules of successful marriage. Well, so bliss, as you described it, is of course two givers living together. If one of them's a giver and one is more of a taker, which I'm assuming is more the more the common type of marriage that we have, should the giver just keep giving? Or he might be a bit scared, she might be a bit scared, they'll turn into a doormat and that person will carry on taking. Or will that giving eventually end up in the taking person being more giving? That's a wonderful question. And I think the wise answer to that is it becomes a personal decision. You know, we see relationships where one is totally giving, one is totally taking, and they're functional. They're functional. Sad to say, some people become very functional doormats, you know, and some people even need that end of the relationship, but it's not ultimately healthy. And therefore, of course, of course, one can be a very gracious receiver. One can give by receiving too, of course. Give your partner the opportunity to give. But I would say this is that when there's a very skewed relationship, one is giving all the time or forced to give, the other's purely taking, showing no response and no, no appreciation, and it becomes a bitter relationship, that becomes a very practical, specific and personal question. Is the way forward to maximize this relationship and there are techniques for doing it, or is it separation and divorce? You know, and it's like an investment. Some investment need to be pursued and built and others need to be wisely cut. Therefore, I can't give you a general answer. This takes a mature insight into the particularities of the relationship. Divorce is not a picnic. You know, in the best cases, divorce is, is painful. And of course, the ones who suffer most probably are the children. And therefore, the decision whether to end this relationship or push on with wisdom in how to maximize the relationship, those two options need to be carefully considered. Both are valid. But I think it becomes a personal decision in any particular given relationship, which is the optimal one to pursue. Wow. I did want to talk to you a bit about divorce, about why the divorce rate is much higher, but perhaps we should leave it for next time because we've gone a bit over time. Thank you very much, Rabbi Tetz. That was episode three in finding a marriage partner and having a good marriage. And Finding and staying. <laughs> finding keeping, and staying. Finding and keeping, I would say. Keeping is probably more of a skill than finding of sorts. Yes, indeed, indeed. And we'll see you next week. Thank you very much, Rabbi Tetz. Mm-hmm.